Okay, well, I think we will get started. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabri, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato, and I'm honored to serve as the moderator of today's book forum. Uh, as you could imagine, as our Director of Financial Services Regulation, I've had the opportunity to read a very large number of books on the financial crisis. I've actually put together a little bit of a reading list at Cato's at Liberty blog, uh, <clears throat> and every time I see a new one, the really question that comes to my mind is, why another? What does this one do that, what does this one say or put out there that distinguishes it from the rest? And I really do think that uh, today's topic, financing failure, uh, financing failure, really does distinguish itself from previous books. Uh, what's most importantly new is just a treasure trove of information, particularly communication between the key regulators uh, during the crisis that are the result uh, of the author's various FOIA requests and litigation to enforce those FOIA requests, uh, and of course with the assistance of Judicial Watch. Uh, it really is a treasure trove of information. Uh, to me, when after reading the book, I really walked away just with the impression that the regulators during the crisis were just absolutely clueless. There seems to be a back and forth dialogue uh, that I think is revealed in the book of really not knowing what to do, why to do it, uh, but just you have to do it. Uh, and I think it also reveals how dishonest, in my opinion, many of the regulators were with their representations to the American public. Uh, we've heard repeated claims of transparency from institutions by, like the Federal Reserve. Um, but to me, I think the book offers pretty strong evidence what I'd say is a widespread regulatory culture of deception and concealment. Uh, anyone who continues to believe that all, of our, that all we need to fix our financial system is more <clears throat> discretion to these financial regulators, I think sorely needs to read this book. Uh, the author of Financing Failure, Vern McKinley, has a long history of working inside some of the very agencies he discusses in his book. He's held positions with the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, in the Office of Thrift Supervision's Resolution Trust Corporation. Uh, Vern is currently a research fellow at the Independent Institute, while he also does some consulting work on financial reform for governments around the world. Uh, financing Failure has been already received considerable praise from across the political spectrum. Uh, any book, in my opinion, that gets blurbs from both the Roosevelt Institute and the American Enterprise Institute must have something uh, right, if not more than a few things right. Fortunately for us, I think the book gets about everything right. And uh, I also note that I think this book will serve as a very unique source uh, for historians and people researching this in the future. There really is a ton of very unique dialogue that's represented here that I don't think is reflected in other publications. Uh, we are also very fortunate today to have with us Matt Stoller, who will be offering comments on the book. Uh, Matt is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and a contributing editor to the financial website Naked Capitalism. He also contributes to Politico, Alternet, Salon, The Nation, and Reuters. So uh, I'm not sure when Matt finds much time to do anything else but write with all that. Uh, from 2009 to 2011, Matt served as senior policy advisor to Representative Alan Grayson of Florida's 8th Congressional District. During that time, Matt played a central role in helping bring some transparency to the Federal Reserve. Uh, you may remember that Representative Grayson was an original sponsor, along with Representative Ron Paul, on the House version of the Federal Reserve Audit Bill. Uh, in fact, uh, I remember on many occasions hearing my friends on the left call it the Grayson Bill. Uh, whatever its name, portions of it were ultimately incorporated into Dodd-Frank, and in my opinion, one of the few good things to come out of Dodd-Frank. So certainly want to recognize and thank Matt for his efforts in that regard. Uh, with that, I want to thank, uh, thank the use of the audience and thank our panelists, and I'm going to turn the podium over to Vern. Okay, thank you very much, Mark. Um, I saw Mark on television. I don't know if it was CNBC, one of these uh, 
one of these past few months, and he was talking about books on the financial crisis, and he only said he said that only one or two of the books on the financial crisis were worth a damn. I think was the exact <laughs> phrase. So I hope uh, I hope you'll let me know at some point in time whether whether uh, this book is worth a damn. Um, let me get started here. I mean, the topic of the day is bailouts. Um, you might, as an initial question, say, well, 2008, 2009, that was when all this went down. Here we are, 2012. Why did it take you so long to put together this book? And um, the simple answer to that question is uh, the government didn't cooperate uh, too much with me. This is uh, the answer I got from the FDIC. I asked a pretty simple question, what bad things would have happened if you allowed one of these large banks like uh, Wachovia to fail? Similar question to the Fed on AIG. Sorry. How do you go backwards? Sorry. We write plank. Back. Sorry. Get the recording. Um, sorry. Previous. Right again, the little menu comes up previous. Oh, okay. Thanks. Sorry. Now I know. All right. So I don't know about you, but I, I kind of lean toward the, the white out versus the, uh, the gray out, but everybody has their own choice on that. And then this was the answer when I asked the Federal Housing Finance Agency um, about Fannie and Freddie, why they chose to put it in uh, conservatorship over receivership. I'll briefly go through these, uh, these three documents quickly to give you a sense of what I was looking for in each of them. This first one, uh, there's a concept called systemic risk. It's this whole idea if you allow a big institution to fail, there'll be a negative fallout, and you're going to basically, in the extreme, take down the whole financial system. And this concept is called uh, systemic risk. It's called contagion. But this is uh, a two-and-a-half-page piece from a document that I requested on Wachovia's failure that uh, details uh, systemic risk. And obviously, they blanked out the whole thing. After working with Judicial Watch for about two years, we were able to get the document, ultimately. This uh, document from the Fed, uh, you might remember the back and forth between the, the timeline of all the bailouts. First thing was Bear Stearns was bailed out. They said that that was illiquid but solvent. And then Lehman, they said, we let it go because it was insolvent. And then you jump back to AIG, and they said that was also um, solvent but just illiquid and just needed a little bit of money to get through a, a tough period. And uh, this uh, subject matter line for this email, internal email between the Fed uh, in New York and the Fed uh, in Washington is solvency. So I was kind of interested to find out exactly what they had to say about solvency. It would have been a little embarrassing if uh, the party line was that um, AIG was solvent and this, uh, this email, which had the, the uh, message and also the attachment stripped out, if it said something contradictory. But uh, 
Judicial Watch and I fought for a couple years and never did get this document. And then the last one here, this is probably the most galling of, of all of them. This is uh, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're the institution that costs the largest of all the bailouts. It's probably going to be something in the range of 150 to $200 billion to resolve it. Um, my basic question is, why did you put it in conservatorship, which is kind of a, a limbo uh, status? instead of putting it in receivership, which would have allowed to wind it down right away and stop the, the, uh, the bleeding from uh, all the losses that, uh, that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were experiencing. <clears throat> Initially, they said, we're not going to give you anything. And after fighting with them for a few years, um, they, they finally gave us this heavily redacted document. And then the, uh, the Freedom of Information Act is kind of a loser-pays system. If you um, have to, if the agency has to give up the documents and they ultimately lose on their fight, they have to pay the costs of the, uh, of the plaintiff that sues. And if you can believe it, their argument was, well, what we gave you was essentially garbage. So it didn't add to the public's knowledge about um, the bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, so you shouldn't get your fees recouped. So that's a little summary about some of the, the challenges uh, Judicial Watch and I had in uh, getting information for this book. <clears throat> uh, let, me, let me step back on information a little bit. Uh, back in the, the Depression, um, the initial narrative that came out of the Depression was, well, this was a big failure of capitalism. Um, you know, some of the bailouts during that period helped out and made things a little better, but it, it was basically a, a failure of capitalism and, and there was nothing that the government did that, or, or could have done to make things uh, better in that situation. And uh, it wasn't until about the 1960s with Milton Friedman and uh, Murray Rothbard uh, that you really saw a detailed analysis and a, and a new narrative came out of that that not only was uh, it, it not entirely attributable to the, uh, the private market, but the Federal Reserve did a lot in both the 1920s and the 1930s that led to the, uh, uh, the financial crisis and the, and the Depression. So fast forwarding to 2008 and 2009, um, in the early days, there, right in, uh, during 2008 and 2009, the, uh, there were three groups that essentially had a monopoly on uh, all the information that came out. It's this uh, group uh, between the, the bailout agencies, which was the Fed, the FDIC, Treasury, Federal Housing Finance Agency, and then politicians. Um, got a quote from Senator Bennett, who ended up losing a primary because of his vote on the bailout. He, he called uh, one of his votes on uh, the, the TARP bailout uh, Congress's finest moment, if you can believe it. And then there's this third category, what I call cafeteria capitalists. These are the, the people that uh, pick and choose the parts of capitalism that they like. They love capitalism when it's going their way, but when it uh, goes the opposite way, well, they're the first ones to run to the government. And some of the documents that I was able to get a hold of were actual emails to people at the Federal Reserve from these, uh, these cafeteria capitalists. And they were basically laying out a laundry list of all the things the government had to do to, uh, um, uh, you know, 
correct all the problems in the financial system. And these groups are intertwined to a large extent. If you start at the bottom, the, the cafeteria capitalists, they give money to the politicians. The politicians, obviously, they give powers to the bailout agencies uh, to undertake the bailouts. And then looping back, the bailout agencies uh, um, um, complete the cycle by um, providing the bailouts to the, uh, the financial institutions that the cafeteria capitalists uh, are involved with. So what was the, there was a narrative that came out of this whole uh, uh, period of 2008 and 2009. First of all, you know, they, they told stories about what bad things would happen and not only would those bad things happen to the, to the Wall Street banks and, and banks generally, but that that was gonna hurt Main Street the old uh, Main Street, Wall Street paradigm. The second uh, uh, part of this narrative is that we were saved from a Great Depression, and, and the last one was this whole idea that this was just unprecedented. We had never seen anything like it. And uh, there were some books in that period, 2008 and 2009, that, that looked at um, these issues, and I, I think, uh, I highlight two in particular here, Too Big to Fail and In Fed We Trust. They were good with the details of the bailouts, but they were pretty weak on the policy, and I think that was largely due to necessity. A lot of this information wasn't out yet, and uh, um, they did pull some of it out through their interviews, but in general, these two, ba uh, two books and the others that came out in that period were pretty weak on policy. I, I should highlight here that there were, I would say, at least three uh, cases of uh, people in the press or uh, a link to the press that did a, a pretty good job in this. First of all, it was Bloomberg. They had lawsuits that went all the way to Supreme Court trying to get details on uh, some of the, the Fed's activity. Second is the Wall Street Journal. A guy named James Freeman has done a lot on systemic risk. And then also, if I can add one more, is uh, MSNBC's Dylan Radigan. His work has been more recent. He's done a lot of Freedom of Information Act uh, requests similar to the ones that I've done and, and also Bloomberg has, has gotten involved in. So I mentioned that uh, during the Depression, it took about 30 years before information got out on the details. And the same phenomenon has happened this time, but instead of waiting 30 years, we only had to wait two or three years. Um, this is just a list of some of the new pieces of information. I know a lot of people probably 2008 and 2009 were following the financial crisis very closely, but um, they may have trailed off in the last couple years and not followed so closely the, the, the back and the forth and the new information that's come out. I think Secretary Paulson's book, although I didn't agree with a lot of what he had to say on a policy front, it had a lot of good details that weren't available elsewhere. And then um, the, the Lehman Examiner's report came out, GAO and Congressional Oversight Panel, which was headed by Elizabeth Warren, uh, did, did some work on AIG. All of this information, I've got a couple of the lawsuits that we had that it's listed. And it's really filled in a lot of details, and I use these details um, in the book. And uh, here's another citation to the Bloomberg Supreme Court case. They literally got tens of thousands of pages from the Fed on, uh, on uh, uh, some of the details of the transactions that were done with the banks. Um, 
So, I mean, I've talked a lot about the information so far, but let's transition a little bit here into some of the, the themes that come out of the information that I was able to put together. Uh, the first, uh, these are three quotes that I have at the beginning of the book. The first thing is uh, the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. It's this whole idea of repeating of history. This uh, is also brought out in the uh, book by um, Reinhardt and Rogoff um, that uh, details going back 800 years. I've uh, found this same thing um, over the past 100 uh, years that we've had uh, bailouts in the U.S. And this is uh, from the Bible, uh, the, the concept of there being nothing new under the sun. The next uh, quote is uh, a description of flying by the seat of the pants. This is uh, the, the best description that I can come up with of how um, some of the reactions by the regulators during this period were. It's uh, proceed or work by feel or instinct without formal guidelines or experience. And I, I should note here that this is the first time that anybody in literary history has uh, quoted the Bible with the Urban Dictionary back to back. Um, and then the last thing is uh, the story of Chicken Little. Uh, I'll go into that a little more, but it's this, uh, this habit that a lot of the regulators had of uh, telling all these scary stories about what bad things would happen if... Uh, if a certain institution were to fail. I talked a little bit about systemic risk earlier, but um, the, uh, the concept came out, especially in one of the, the documents that I got from the Fed. They, they cited the word contagion as the reason, but they didn't really go into detail, and that led me to ask uh, more details about um, what they meant by contagion. And it's this whole idea that if you have one big bank fail, uh, you, you're going to have this cascading effect, domino effect, whatever you want to call it, and it's going to wipe out not only good or not only bad banks, which you would expect, but also good banks. Everybody would have uh, kind of trouble differentiating between uh, different types of banks. And I won't go into history too much, but uh, this little segment here, I'll talk a little bit about um, some of the history as it traces back and. These historical examples are of this phenomenon of, uh, of uh, a domino effect or contagion. This is important, uh, 1907, because it was this financial crisis that caused the creation, at least uh, by most uh, accounts, of the Federal Reserve. This happened in 1907. The Federal Reserve was created in uh, uh, 1913, it was, and they got up and running in 1914. Knickerbocker Trust was a big uh, New York bank. There were worries that if it failed, all bad things would happen. Same old story that we heard uh, in the most recent crisis. And what happened was J.P. Morgan, the, the person, not the uh, financial institution, and also a guy named Benjamin Strong, who ended up being the first uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, they looked at this bank said it was poorly managed, it had a, a bad portfolio, and essentially said it wasn't worth saving. And because there was no Federal Reserve at that point in time, um, uh, there, there was no uh, lender of last resort in that sense of the word. They were, uh, Morgan and, uh, and Strong were uh, going to act as a lender of last resort. And they, they let it fail. And, and not too many bad things happened. There was a downturn for about a year in the economy, but um, it, it wasn't that bad. Bank of the United States, this was during the Depression. Uh, similar story. 
They had investments to insiders, a lot of real estate loans, just generally poorly managed. The argument from the, the head of the state banking authority in New York was that if you let Bank of the United States fail, that 10 other banks would fail. They let it fail, and no other banks failed. And uh, it was, again, a, a time where there was scare tactics and scary stories thrown around. But um, in, in both of those first two cases, the institution failed, and uh, there wasn't really any negative fallout, at least not uh, directly. And then this is important, Franklin National Bank, because it was a, there was a transition here. And uh, Franklin's familiar story, they got into <laughs> lending problems. After they got into lending problems, they, just, they had this great idea, well, let's get into the FX market and we'll make enough money in that market to uh, get back uh, into insolvency. Of course, that didn't work out well. And uh, the Fed stepped in the FDIC bailed out the, um, the depositors. And this was really the first case where we had a, what's called now a, commonly a too-big-to-fail institution. And uh, so this is just a list of some of these banks where you heard this concept of, uh, of uh, contagion, a lot of scary stories told. And in the 70s, mid-70s was Franklin, which I mentioned. First Pennsylvania was another. This was in Philadelphia. And then the one most people have probably heard of is Continental, Illinois. That was a big Chicago institution. It got a lot of publicity because that was during the, the election of uh, 1984. The Democrats tried to uh, tar the Reagan administration. And they told all these stories at the FDIC about all the bad things that would happen if Continental were allowed to fail. And, uh, you know, it was 66 banks will fail, you know, maybe 100 more will be on the brink. So uh, that was torn apart by um, a congressional committee under uh, uh, Congressman St. Germain. And uh, it was shown, even though they did bail out Continental, it was shown that a lot of the scare tactics that were thrown around were, were just wildly overstated. And then long-term capital management is the final example. Uh, that was very recent, but this was a, in the sense of the, the long history. But um, in that case, the, the argument was made again. This is by the New York Fed, who pulled together a, a consortium of banks to, uh, to bail out long-term capital management. It wasn't a, a, federal, a, a federal bailout, but it was um, a case where the New York Fed did get involved. So back to this issue of the, the chicken little stories. Um, I don't know if I, I had a deprived childhood, but I, I really didn't, I don't think I read Chicken Little when I was uh, younger. But as, uh, as I researched this book, I, I went back and uh, studied Chicken Little uh, in more detail. Chicken Little got conked on the head with, a, with an acorn, panicked, uh, misdiagnosed what had happened, thought that all bad things were going to happen, imagined things that... Uh, um, and started running and told a lot of his friends. So he not only, I don't know if it's a he or a she, but uh, we'll just assume a he for the basic uh, simplicity, and uh, ran and told all his friends. So it's, it's similar in a lot of ways to this, uh, this uh, habit of these uh, agencies of uh, not only getting scared themselves, but, but spreading the panic. And it's just this 
bizarre notion that you promote financial stability by telling a lot of stories about how inherently unstable the system was. And I think this is uh, one of the things that made the, uh, uh, the, the circumstances in the most recent crisis a lot worse. And so, of course, they carried on the tradition during the most recent crisis. I won't go into detail on these. You can read them in the book. But in the case of Bear Stearns, you had Governor Krosner. He was focused on the, the credit fault, uh, default swaps market. He said that there were all uh, sorts of risks with uh, allowing Bear Stearns to fail because that the CDS market was going to implode. Chairman Bernanke during Fannie and Freddie he talked about some catastrophe. You notice that none of these are detailed too much. Uh, based on some emails I, I was able to get a hold of, Governor Krosner had a staffer working on this issue, but they went ahead and voted for the Bear Stearns uh, bailout, even though they hadn't completely finished all of their research and analysis on this issue of the, the credit default swaps market. And of course, uh, Secretary Geithner, everybody loves to make fun of Secretary Geithner and some of his chicken little language. This was related to AIG. He talked about one, one default is going to cause the whole institution to fail. <clears throat> Neil Kashkari, he was at Treasury for Secretary Paulson, uh, worried about the Great Depression coming on again. Uh, FDIC memo, they talked about uh, the failure of Wachovia, which was one of the big banks that would lead investors to doubt the, 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 the strength of all the other institutions. And then I think really the, the height of all the scare tactics was uh, during the TARP debates. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of TARP, obviously, but um, I think really the biggest impact TARP had was that it brought down confidence quite a bit. And this one quote about uh, the staff on the Hill, uh, the Treasury people were going to go up to talk to them about the TARP, and they said, we're not going to bother with any of the details we're just going to scare the SH out of them. And then that spilled over into uh, Secretary Paulson. He talked about the Great Depression. Last one here is uh, Chairman Bernanke, just hysterical about um, Citigroup if it failed, that, uh, that it would block access to ATMs. And, and there was really no evidence of this. And he's had lectures. I don't know if you followed it, but he was at uh, GW. Uh, as an adjunct professor, and he's, uh, he's continuing the tradition of uh, telling scare tactics this time about AIG. Again, I, I don't need to necessarily read these in too much detail. These are all in the book, but this first one is Bear Stearns. Um, the, the previous uh, slides had talked about this whole tradition of uh, the scare tactics and the chicken little stories. So you might wonder, well, was there any actual analysis there? What did you find, Vern, on, uh, on the emails and the attachments and everything? These are just a couple examples I'll read. This, this is the first bailout, really, the Bear Stearns bailout. Corey Ann Stevenson just called and said, this is the info, still preliminary and probably not super accurate, but kind of in the ballpark, at least, that she has about the exposure of banks to Bear Stearns. She also said, and then she named an institution that should be on the list, but nobody could confirm it. And then, sorry if my details are sketchy, but we'll try to provide more substance if we get more information. I must say I'm not that comfortable with the accuracy, but we got the info from the teams. I mean, it was all just bits and pieces where they were trying to pull this information together. They did this within a couple days, and uh, 
um, you don't really get the warm and fuzzy feeling that they, they knew what they were doing. So you might say, well, Vern, that's a little unfair. March caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, but September was the same, the same case. <coughs> you had uh, AIG was having problems then. And these are some of the things that were in the back and forth of the emails. Do you guys have an expert on AIG? What do you know about AIG? Have you produced memos on them any time recently? We don't have an expert on the company, but I do believe we have some work on their credit exposures. And then a little later, one of the guys, uh, I think he was an economist there at the board, the Federal Reserve Board said, I found very little on the derivatives activity of AIG, which is frustrating. They don't seem to say much in the 10Ks and 10Qs. These are the SEC filings um, that AIG had done. So again, just a lot of seat of the pants analysis. Um, it's not clear that they uh, knew what they were doing. This, <coughs> this AIG um, bailout was re reworked multiple times. You can see that, that the initial effort uh, wasn't very well organized and that they um, didn't seem to know what they were doing. And uh, it shows because they kept reworking and reworking the, the transaction. So the, uh, the conclusion that I came to on a lot of these documents and looking at them was that it was all just a lot of wild speculation. They throw around a lot of numbers, a lot of big numbers, trillions, hundreds of billions, but there was really no connection between those big numbers and any negative fallout that would happen. Again, it was just a lot of speculation, what might happen, what could happen. This is the list of some of the uh, analysis I did, the, the Bear Stearns situation. Again, they, they just talked about the CDS market. <coughs> Fannie and Freddie, they, uh, they really didn't release a lot of information on the conservatorship versus uh, receivership choice. And then Lehman, they, they determined early that there were problems there, but um, they were talking right till the very last uh, minute about um, the possibility of still bailing them out. They ultimately decided not to bail out Lehman. <clears throat> so I've shown a lot of quotes from the Fed, but this quote from John Stewart to me made a lot more sense. I know he's not really as reputable as uh, some of the people at the Fed, maybe in some people's opinion, but he said, I'm not an economist, but these are some fragile effing businesses. This was after he ran a clip about uh, Tim Geithner talking about AIG. What are our banks made of? Balsa wood held together by baby tears? <laughs> and then uh, I uh, and uh, Mark had mentioned that I do some work in emerging markets. Um, and I've been to a lot of systems that are fragile. I've been to Afghanistan and Tajikistan, Sudan, and, and those markets are very, very fragile. Uh, people don't have a lot of history with uh, trusting banks and uh, their legal infrastructure isn't really up to, up to the point where they can rely on it. But, um, uh, you know, they have really fragile systems, but I'm, I'm not convinced that, that the U.S. Uh, system is, is so fragile that we should be telling these stories. I worked back in Texas during the 80s, and if you look at the financial institutions that existed in 1980 in Texas, the 10 biggest, by the end of the 1980s, in 1990, nine of them were gone. Seven of them failed, 
Two of them were bought by out-of-state interests. So, I mean, I think that's pretty clear evidence that our uh, financial system can take these kind of churning of, uh, of failures. And I, I think it, 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 in general, it is, is better just to let these large institutions fail, given that there's not much evidence of the, the negative fallout. <clears throat> One thing I mentioned earlier, I'll just touch on briefly about the Great Depression and that we saved ourselves from another Great Depression. You might think, based on what was said by the Federal Reserve during the, the crisis, that uh, this is actually in the Federal Reserve Act, but it's not. I mean, I, I think the, the whole idea is that um, they are required to achieve maximum employment. That's one of the objectives in the Federal Reserve Act. So all this talk of the Great Depression is kind of a lowering of the bar, an effort to uh, change the conversation regarding what the Federal Reserve has to do. And I've come up with... <coughs> come up with this rule that I've uh, laid out here. Uh, based on the, the 100 years the Federal Reserve has been in existence and also the 100 years of history that I trace, the deeper the financial crisis, the greater the number and seriousness of policy screw-ups in, in Washington. And that's mostly the Fed, but uh, some of the other agencies were also uh, uh, involved. <coughs> Sorry. And this is just a quick quote from Milton Friedman. It, it kind of gives you the same flavor. Uh, the, the Fed's always trying to take credit for all the good things that happen and blame external forces for all the negative things. And then I'll, I'll finish up my talk talking a little bit about Dodd-Frank. Based on the history, most, uh, most of you have probably heard of the phases um, various phases and uh, thoughts of uh, grief, I think it is, where first of all you have denial. And I've also traced this through for uh, financial crises and bailouts. First step is usually denial. They say, well, we're the regulator of this institution. We would never let them uh, uh, you know, have problems. So of course, uh, they're not about to fail. The next step is acceptance, and at the same time, there's panic. And this is where they come up with these bailouts usually. And then the next step is reform legislation, and that's exactly what the next step was in the most recent crisis. We had reform legislation in the form of Dodd-Frank. And there were two primary pieces to this. This is a quote from uh, President Obama. <clears throat> that Dodd-Frank put a stop to taxpayer bailouts once and for all. I've mentioned that to a lot of people, and, and not too many people believe that. They, uh, they, they think that next time this happens, there's going to be the similar cycle, denial, acceptance, panic, and bailouts uh, all over again. I mean, I think the only way that that's going to change um, is if we have people around the next time at these agencies, whether it's Treasury or the Fed or the FDIC, that, that understands the history as I've laid it out here, knows that... These bailouts are just kind of a quick fix. They, uh, they do a lot of long-term damage, but um, the idea is just let, let the, get the hurting over with, get the, the financial system back, don't, don't allow the market to work and uh, um, adjust things, uh, uh, bring about, I mean, all this was brought about by mail investment in, in the most recent crisis. They don't want to let the market go back to normal, but I think that in the long run is, is the best way to do it. 
So uh, to conclude, uh, there's a couple things here. The, the book is uh, published by the Independent Institute. You can get it also on Amazon. And all my litigation, I've got about 5,000 pages on a website called Scribd, and that's a combination of documents that I was able to get and FOIA requests and some of the, the actual filings in the litigation. Maybe if you're interested in doing some similar litigation, you could go there and, and see how those are structured. A judicial Watch, which is my, was my attorney for this, they also have details on their website, and then you can also... Um, contact me by email. And I'm, I'm also looking forward to hearing from Matt today. Um, we've been in contact. I have, have a lot of respect for his old boss, Alan Grayson, and I'm sure um, <clears throat> that, um, that a lot of what he's done is, is going to be uh, good for the long run between his work with, Secret uh, with uh, Congressman Paul on improving the transparency. And my, definitely my favorite YouTube video of all the whole financial crisis was when he cornered the Fed's IG. I don't know if you had anything to do with that, but he cornered the Fed's IG about the extent of all the, the trillions of uh, commitments that were made during the crisis. And she basically said she didn't know what he, what he was talking about. So uh, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing what Matt has to say um, about my book. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so that YouTube video was, I think it's, was the most popular uh, congressional hearing on YouTube. Um, this has like four or five million views until another congressional hearing topped it, which was a congressman who, who asked an admiral whether our presence on Guam would tip the island over. <laughs> I do but, remember that. Yeah. Um, so actually, I was, I'm reminded um, when you showed those documents on the screen, The Onion had an article um, talking about how the CIA has learned they, they've been accidentally using a, a black highlighter for the last 30 years. <laughs> that was kind of funny. Um, so uh, recently, I mean, you talk a lot about false narratives, um, and that's in this book, and, and that's really an important concept. Um, I heard uh, Tim Geithner, uh, I think it was last week, talk about uh, why our regulatory system failed to prevent the financial crisis and um, the lack of prosecutions around the financial crisis. And he said, well, you can't legislate away stupidity and risk-taking and greed. Um, and I want to talk about this quote because I think it's really important. Um, so, but first I want to say thank you for inviting me to talk um, about and celebrate um, Vern's book. It really is great. Um, and one of the things that you find working in, in Congress uh, and just in general is in, in this area is there's an enormous amount as, of disinformation. Um, just lots of lying, lots of uh, documents that are meant to obscure and confuse, lots of fear-mongering. There's a quote that, um, that I thought was really important uh, when Paul, Paul Kanjorski, who's a senior, who was a senior congressman on the Financial Services Committee on the House side, said that uh, regulatory officials told him that if the bailouts didn't pass, that there would be martial law. I don't know if you remember that, but it, there was there was I mean martial law, right? That's they they were really grasping for for anything. And so the thing that's really important about this book is that it's it really does go to the data, to the emails, and really 
talks explicitly about what was, what was put out in public through these kind of narrative structures, and then um, actually shows what was really going on as best as, as, as he could by getting those documents. And no one else has done anything remotely similar. And then just to, to let you know how detail-oriented Vern is, I noticed in the talk you actually gave a qualifier about the gender of Chicken Little. So I thought that was, <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's going to get it right. Um, uh, Geithner's comments on risk-taking, stupidity, and greed are a false narrative. Um, and um, those human qualities were not actually created in 2007. <clears throat> um, and, you know, it could be just because I worked in Congress, and, you know, um, <laughs> I suspect that greed and stupidity are actually constant companions of the human condition. But sometimes we have financial crises, and sometimes we don't. Um, so we need to actually figure out how we can have um, uh, prevent crises, if possible, through better policymaking, and um, legislate with the understanding that people do dumb, greedy things, and they lie about it. Uh, and a big part of this is actually ending the secrecy that characterizes our regulatory institutions. Another part of it is that the public and our public officials need to develop the confidence to make decisions about our financial system because the financial system is deeply political. And um, you know, one of the great things about working for, well, I'll, I'll talk about this in a little bit. I, I just realized I'm at Cato. Um, but I worked for a guy who was really confident. And, and uh, you know, Grayson, you know, he wanted to make decisions. And that was so rare in, in Congress. And it was so rare in our regulatory institutions. And we need people who want to make decisions, who want to govern. Um, so the hypothesis of the book is that false narratives, uh, which, are, which are peddled by regulators, um, bankers, or I guess, as you call them, cafeteria capitalists, uh, and politicians are actually designed to obscure underlying policy choices. And, and this is still going on. And a simple way to understand this is um, by looking at how utterly uninterested both political parties are in oversight. Um, in, in understanding how we lost $7 trillion of home equity, which is the main source of savings for the middle class. Um, in the four years that the Democrats ran the Financial Services Committee, I think this is true. Um, I never saw it, but the, um, the committee didn't issue a single subpoena. And the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, I mean, this is the largest financial crisis that we've seen most of our lifetimes, and they didn't issue a single subpoena. The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, which was tasked with analyzing the cause of the crisis, uh, came out with its report in 2011, which was after Dodd-Frank was written. So diagnosing a problem after you've patched together a solution is a bad way <clears> to <throat> make policy unless you already know what you want to do, and the oversight is ornamental. And so that's why, I mean, everybody will acknowledge it. Maybe they'll do it privately, um, but uh, everyone knows that Dodd-Frank didn't solve any systemic problems in our financial system because it wasn't really meant to. Um, another way that you can tell this is that, except for the Office of Thrift Supervision, which was sort of the regulatory sacrificial lamb, no one was fired for what happened. I mean, it's crazy. You had the same people who were in charge designing the system to fix the problems that they didn't see. The Republicans haven't really been any better. Um, they, you know, aside from Bush and the incredible continuity of policy from Bush to Obama, um, the Republicans took the House in 2010, and they really haven't been any different. I was actually intrigued that Daryl Issa would be the chairman of Government Reform Committee because he actually said during the transition that he would subpoena the transcripts of the crisis-era federal open market committee meetings. Um, and actually, the Republicans were better on transparency at the Fed when I was, um, when I was there. 
and uh, it was much easier to work with them on, on, on these issues. The real fight in the committee was with Democrats. Um, but ISA, now that he's in charge, hasn't tried to get that information. And the Fed actually has become a lot more confident in its stonewalling of the public uh, because the political pressure on them seems to have relented or has relented, actually. Um, so the, the Huffington Post, the Dylan Radigan show, has mentioned a filed a FOIA request for the transcripts. And what you'll find if you look at those transcripts is that um, uh, you won't know what they were talking about when they decided to bail out Bear Stearns, but you will know that they broke for lunch uh, after most meetings. Um, you'll also know that they, there was unredacted laughter 77 times um, from 2007 to 2010. Um, I don't know if there was laughter that was redacted. Maybe those were the good jokes. Um, <laughs> But a lot of the people who are in those meetings have moved on to the private sector. So the public doesn't know what was, in, what was being said at those meetings. But if you're a hedge fund <clears throat> or a financial institution, you can hire forecasting firms with employees who do. So it's, it's a good time to be thinking about this in the context of the 2012 election. Um, because while there's a heated and bitter fight in the media between the two candidates, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, there's been basically no disagreement that I can find no discussion even, on their support for an alliance between large corrupt banking institutions and secretive government regulators and central bankers. Um, both Romney and Obama seem to believe in rule by the technocrats. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't see that discussion happening in the presidential campaign um, because that narrative that the bailouts were necessary, that these regulators, that Bush, that Obama saved us from a Great Depression, uh, the follow-on sort of more and more absurd er narratives like TARP made money, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, these aren't being challenged. And, but these, these narratives require intimidating the public with big words and scary-sounding concepts they don't understand because people kind of know that the banks and the, the government are kind of out to get them, um, but they, they still stay intimidated because people in suits tell them things about that, that are just very confusing. Um, and, uh, and that's very powerful. If, if we want to uh, restore some semblance of democracy, we have to recognize that what these, this secrecy does is it, is it carves out economics and finance as a sphere of policy that cannot be subject to democratic deliberation and has to be handled by disinterested experts. And it's up to the public to recognize, and people in this room, that both parties have been captured by these sort of hybrid financial government interests by a sort of corrupt type of central planner in both the private and public sector. So I was, um, you know, I was, I, I met Vern when I was working for Congressman Grayson, who um, is known, of course, for his mild manners, um, his go-along, get-along mentality, and his general shyness. Um, and uh, you can laugh if you want. You don't have to. But I like making these jokes, so I'm going to enjoy them. Um, <laughs> But the constant challenge uh, working on the committee with, with staffers, with um, regulators, with, um, with members, um, when working on an amendment to open up the Federal Reserve to public scrutiny, is that members just didn't have enough confidence to question the Fed. They just, they were scared. Uh, they were as scared as I think the regulators were when the system seemed to be collapsing. Um, so when, when Grayson, um, his second hearing in Congress, he asked, the vice chair of the Fed, Don Cohn, which banks got $1.2 trillion of spending or lending from the Fed, and Cohn wouldn't divulge the names of the banks. And at the time, that was like a pretty boring YouTube clip, but it got over 150,000 views. 
And over the course of the next couple of years, people like Vern and, and people on the right and the left made a case for transparency. But it was a real struggle to persuade people, very basically, that we should know what happened to a trillion plus dollars of money, of our money. And um, economists kept talking about the importance of the independence of the Fed, which is code for secrecy and keeping the public in the dark. Um, and now we're in the dark again. That's really what's happened is it's, it's closed up. Um, so this is the central problem that's confronting those of us on the right and the left who believe that the basis of sound policymaking is an honest public airing of the evidence. Um, right now, the structure of our discourse is organized around the language of economics of experts. And we have removed the question of management of national resources from our politics to the point where this presidential campaign, where America discusses what is it about, is entirely empty of any discussion over these questions. In fact, the central narrative of this race is false, which is about egalitarian distributions of wealth, which you've seen with every president. And um, there's actually good data on this, is that um, during the Clinton era of, of wage gains, 45 cents of every dollar went to the top 1%. During the Bush era of wage gains, it was 65 cents of every dollar. From 2009 to 2010, during the Obama recovery, it's 93 cents of every dollar. And uh, this is, I'm not sure exactly why this is, but I think it has to do with the bailouts. And um, it's no surprise that neither party wants to talk about these false narratives that are laid out so well in, Ver in Burns' book, because they don't want to tell the truth about how wealth is really distributed in the context of a corrupt financial system and a corrupt regulatory apparatus. Now, I am hopeful um, because markets do ultimately respond to reality. Um, and what was really interesting about that time is that um, the public did become interested in our financial structure. People were watching congressional hearings on YouTube. They cared about this, and they still do. Uh, ben Bernanke became a household name. And um, economists, through a whole variety of, of, of mechanisms, documentaries, books, films, have been shown to be as self-interested as any other class of experts. Now, I don't think anybody's read Vern's book, and you really should, um, can believe for a second that we're over this financial crisis. We might be in a lull. Um, but the next time we have one, the next time the big questions around banking, debt, credit, and democracy return, we will hopefully, as a country, have matured to the point where we can confidently demand answers from our political and financial leaders. Thank you. Thank you, Bob.